God. All right. Thank you for joining us again as we are in Acts 19, and we hope to get through this chapter tonight. We should. Um, but first, let's start with prayer, and then I, I want to say a little bit of something, and then we'll get into the text. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Christ our God, be with us as we read your Holy Scripture, open our minds to your holy word and open our hearts to follow what we find and is revealed to us in our study of your scriptures. Um, allow us to be enlightened with your Holy Spirit so that we may in turn witness to the world the gospel, that we may conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of your holy gospel, so that with one mind and one spirit we may strive together in the unity of the faith, uh, and for the sake of the gospel. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I was just, before we started recording, plugging uh, a podcast, The Lord of the Spirits, which is on Ancient Faith Radio. Uh, it's Father Andrew Damick and Father Stephen DeYoung. Uh, you're probably familiar or heard the name Father Stephen DeYoung because David uh, has mentioned it uh, here in this class uh, a few times at least, uh, and they're doing a very interesting um, overview of scripture and places that might have left you scratching your head. For example, why in Deuteronomy is there a verse about a king with a gigantic bed, for example? Um, or what? what's this Nephilim in Genesis 6? Uh, where do demons come from? Where? Who is the devil? Uh, what are angels, uh, they're going to be doing uh, all sorts of things. Because you might have noticed as you read scripture that there's a lot of odd stuff that doesn't usually uh, get talked about. Um, well, you probably maybe have already realized this in orthodoxy that there are passages, this is something famous that uh, Father Peter Gilquist Sr. would talk about, about how he, would ha he had his Bible growing up and when he encountered orthodoxy, he realized that a lot of the things that the orthodox talked about were the passages that he didn't have highlighted. <laughs> that before, well, especially if you grew up in a Protestant <laughs> context, highlighting and annotating your Bible, you can take classes on that, uh, about how to do that in a organized fashion, uh, which, you know, is a very interesting difference between how the Orthodox will uh, put gold covering and jewels on a gospel book and put it on an altar and kiss it versus taking markers and, you know, green for this and blue for that. Uh, now, I'm not saying that as in a way that we shouldn't deeply study, or even if you have like a study Bible that you do something to that. Uh, it's just interesting how different the modern world approaches a, a text and the sacred text. Um, but the reason I brought all that up too is just to talk about um, the idea of canonicity. And it's something that Father Stephen DeYoung, I believe, in an interview with Jonathan Pajot or the symbolic, so the symbolic universe or something like that. I forget the particular podcast that Pajot has um, where he mentions, because um, a lot of the traditions, a lot of the things that even get mentioned in the new Testament, um, for example, the devil arguing with Moses, uh, not with Moses, but with the Archangel Michael over the body of Moses that you see in Jude uh, it's not something that you find in what would be called the canonical scriptures. If you're going to look in a Protestant Bible, you will not find that anywhere else but Jude. Um, that's because that account is found in another book that's outside of the Protestant biblical canon. And the Orthodox Church exists before there's this idea of a printed bound book of the Bible in the way that we have it. So our idea of canonicity, yeah, there is a particular set of scripture um, but probably the best way to describe it is the stuff that we read in our assemblies. Um, uh, the scripture that's read in the church has a canonical weight. And then there's other books that might be apocryphal. That doesn't mean they're apocryphal secret as in like secret teachings. Uh, it's more like um, the way that I believe it's Vladimir Lossky describes when talking about the Theotokos. That, that you wouldn't, uh, if you were trying to evangelize somebody, start off with, let me tell you about the Theotokos. 
what you would do is talk about Jesus Christ. And once you have an idea, you've kind of grounded the Messiah, then you can bring them into the interior, like inner uh, tradition of the church, as it were, something that within the worship and devotion of the church uh, that you'll discover and be able to honor and venerate um, the mother of God in the right way. Uh, you don't lead off uh, with the saints. Now that doesn't mean that somebody might not be converted because the intercessions of a saint or the intervention of a saint, um, but it helps to understand Orthodox approach to scripture as being a um, uh, pre-modern approach. So that, uh, and I think this kind of actually gets a little bit to what David was, his kind of theorizing last time, um, that they read scripture in a very different way that we do. Uh, when they read and they uh, accept a broader uh, settings of books to help explain some of that. So books like First Enoch, uh, Book of Jubilees. I mean, there's, there's all of these kind of deuterocanonical books that are not considered to be, have the weight of scripture, but that doesn't mean because they don't have the weight of scripture that they're not important or that they weren't read. Because you will find, uh, for example, our, our feasts, uh, the entrance of the Theotokos into the temple, uh, Joachim and Anna, what we know about Joachim and Anna, comes from a Deuterocanonical book, the Proto-Evangelium of James, um, which is one of these uh, books that early Christians would have read and um, based uh, tradition, I wouldn't just say just because of that text, but I think there's a tradition that predates the text, that the text captures. Um, so it helps us to think a little bit broader about the Christian tradition than a kind of like, I've got my bound new, new bonded leather, you know, new King James or King James Bible and this, you know, yes, that's great. I'm glad that we have access to scripture in that way. Um, but the early church, um, many of the early fathers will have uh, Athanasius, Jerome, Irenaeus, they quote wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, um, all sorts of stuff uh, and talk about things that, you know, demons and et cetera, in ways that we're not used to talking about. And I think we've, we've seen some of that stick out here in the book of Acts, um, the demonic, uh, angelic, uh, these, this universe that exists um, that the early Christian church had more exposed to it or accessible to it and understanding of it um, than what we generally probably were brought up to think if we were in Protestant circles, like the idea of having a guardian angel. Uh, I remember you think that was kind of laughable, but God has appointed angels for nations. God has appointed angels for um, individuals as well. And well, it's there in scripture. So uh, it's just probably in the parts of scripture that you don't have highlighted. If you have your, like I do still have my, <laughs> My Bible from high school with all my highlights, which I still like to see what I was thinking when I was 17, because sometimes it's funny. Um, <laughs> so let's now get uh, into Acts 19 after I've plugged that podcast and just kind of, again, reiterated or tried to shape point to ways in which uh, we need to possibly change how we approach scripture for to be actually traditional. So who would like to read? Is Reed going to read for us first? <laughs> I'd be happy to. All right. Let's, uh, let's do 11 through 20 first. And God did extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were carried away from his body to the sick, and diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. And some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Many also of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts 
brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew and prevailed mightily. <clears throat> all right. So this passage could be a synopsis of the entire book of Acts. You've got all the themes that we've been talking about. You've got, of course, the, the gospel. You've got these miracles that are happening. You've got uh, Jew-Greek things going on. You've got issues of money and magic. Um, this is fascinating. Sorry, my, I, 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 <laughs> uh, the, the, it just shows again how far away this universe is from most modern minds or the way that Father Stephen Freeman here, um, I say Father Stephen Freeman, I know that you guys know who Father Stephen is, but if anybody else, you know, <laughs> listens to this podcast that they know who I'm talking about since St. Anne's mm -hmm. is where Father Stephen Freeman is at. Um, and with his uh, two-story universe uh, versus the the one-story universe of the Orthodox world that is the world of Scripture. Uh, there's not a man upstairs in the way that that gets used, right? You know, you know, the deist God who sets it all in motion and is not really present and active. So, Paul must have had a mass mailing of uh, these handkerchiefs out to raise money for his ministry. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten and a letter I've got or two over before. the years. <laughs> yes, I've gotten at least one in my lifetime. Uh, no, uh, but this does go back, uh, harkens to the beginning of Book of Acts, where his shadow uh, is here. There is this presence uh, for good or for evil in this passage. You are either on the side of Jesus or um, there's evil spirits that are present. Um, and there's a power even in the name of Jesus, right? Remember how in the Gospels and in earlier here in the book of Acts, they recognize and they know who Jesus is. Uh, when we have the gathering pigs, they know that they have a particular time left on this earth as well, right? Before it's finally all said and done. And so they're trying to stir up as much chaos as they possibly can. So one... Did you all know that there's Jewish exorcists? Fascinating. Uh, we probably when we think of exorcism, we think of bad 70s movies, or I forget if that's the 60s, but um, I, have, I have actually blessed a house for someone who is not Orthodox, who is having uh, issues. Uh, so the idea of exorcism uh, is uh, not just kind of Vatican issues or like sci-fi or horror stuff. Um, there is something very um, troubling about the fact that there's evil spirits in the world uh, and that if you open yourselves up to them, they will come and cause chaos and havoc. Um, but again, what, who do the Jewish exorcists remind you of in the book of Acts? Who was the first like magician that we met? Oh, Simon. What did Simon see happening? <clears throat> that they had power over spirits and he wanted access to that power? I, I think that these itinerant Jewish exorcists, this also gives uh, us a peek into uh, the world, the religious world. Itinerant means that there is some, they are wandering around like Paul is. And they're crossing paths. The, like this is 19, the chapter 19 seems to be the crossing paths of very like re, uh, Judaism and Christianity. And then this kind of like that third in between Johannine um, where it's starting to settle itself out. Like you have Jewish exorcists who they know there's some kind of power in the name of Jesus, but they're obviously not Christians. Um, but they know that they might have power over evil spirit, like what Simon saw. 
to drive out the these evil spirits. So, do you think what what do you all think of um, the number seven being associated with this? Seven sons of a Jewish high priest. Well, of course, seven, you know, has sort of an ongoing use as sort of a sense of completeness, whether it's the seven days of creation. Yes. Or. Um, How long did it take the, the floodwaters or uh, the raining? It was seven days as well. He, um, let's see here, I'm looking at um, Skeva itself. Um, there is, uh, it's, it's a question about whether or not Skeva was a, a high priest as much as you realize that Judaism is a very complicated thing at this time, right? We already know it's very obvious. You could say there's Pharisees, Sadducees, but there's more than that floating around. Um, did you know that there was a temple in Egypt that they had built? No. Yeah. Uh, I think there was at different times we talk about like there's a second temple, but there's more going on in the world than, than that. Even if I remember correctly, there might even still have been a temple that was uh, associated with Judaism back in Babylon um, that they had built uh, that doesn't, that they then have mm -hmm. inner, you know, Nicene wars about this stuff and critiques of each other, you know, like the Qumran community, um, you know, I had the Maccabees issue earlier. So um, this itinerant uh, group of uh, Jewish believers uh, is probably a, uh, of a different sort than like traditional, you know, the high priest in the temple, but something of a different variant, which I think, would fit since the story right before this is this other variant of the Johannine. Um, that's just my way of talking about them. Um, what do you all make of the, the evil spirits uh, response to them? Well, I think it's remarkable that he not only knows the Lord Jesus, uh, but also the apostle Paul. Yeah. It's like word gets around. And the, the demonic realm. <laughs> Why do you think they know who Paul is? Because of word getting around? It seems, it's also something about, it seems like if you're in Christ, they know that there's a power there. Um, but these Jewish exorcists not actually, like they, it's not a talisman. Like the, the name of Jesus is not this kind of, um, uh, magical thing it requires as we've seen throughout acts especially this the way they speak of as we saw a little in a few verses earlier of of christianity be calling be called the way and that there's a holy spirit that is actually given to you um that you need to be baptized into christ in order to receive this holy spirit so I think they would know Paul in that way too, which sets the, these Jewish exorcists aside, right? They're, they're not baptized. They do not have the, the spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. So the evil spirit does not recognize them. Um, do you think this signs a shift? If, if you have an itinerant Jewish exorcist, at some point this must have obviously worked, Right. I can't imagine that they were going around and doing exorcisms and it never worked, or they would have been a, um, probably not able. Well, maybe that's why they're itinerant. I don't, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I have, well, we messed <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Got to move on. My guess is that there's been a shift that has occurred that before that there had uh, power or the ability to struggle with these uh, evil spirits. And now there has, as we know and understand in the revelation of Jesus Christ, um, specifically in his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, and his ascension to sit at the right hand, that there has been um, a shift in the world, in the world, the invisible world. So 
maybe they have lost their abilities and they've seen what Jesus uh, about Jesus. And so now they're trying something new. What do you all make of um, them being overwhelmed by the evil spirit? Like my first thought was that uh, was the uh, apostles like trying to cast out the evil spirit, I think from the little boy and they couldn't. And Jesus said something, you know, uh, some demons can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. Yeah. Well, and I think too of the Gadarene demoniac uh -huh. and how, you know, he had been captured and chained and he broke the chains. It seems that um, somehow these men, when they were possessed by the spirits, had superhuman strength. Yes. Um, though I, so, but the, it's, it's fascinating how um, this, this spiritual warfare actually <laughs> fleshes itself out through <laughs> serious violence. Um, they're not, this evil spirit's not going to respond to this, this uh, exorcism. It was actually going to mm, own <laughs> these exorcists. Naked and wounded. Well, and I wonder too, looking at this, you know, when the, um, the Jewish leaders were uh, looking at the Lord driving demons out and they said, well, it's by the, the chief uh, of the demons that he does that. And our Lord's response to them is among other things, if I drive out demons by, by, by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons drive them out? Mm. And I've long wondered if what he's saying to them is, look, you, your sons don't drive them out, and I do. Or if what he's saying is, well, <laughs> what names do your sons use? Right. Maybe, maybe they've been calling on Beelzebub and these other names, and, you know, this is a very different experience. I, I, I've never known how to take that, but yeah. it seems somehow related to that. Yeah, no, I, I think there would have been, if there are Jewish exorcists, this is, this is making me want to ask Father Stephen DeYoung about the broader... Um, context uh what where exactly these itinerant jewish exorcists would have been in the in the, the broader jewish literature at the time and what role they played etc but i i think it, it underlines for us um <clears throat> uh so i would say this we've seen a lot of households that are being brought into the fellowship of the kingdom, the church, and uh, free and angels interceding, Paul, even if he's beaten and the violence that's directed towards him, he's able to glorify in it, and it usually, you know, even attracts, or he's able to dodge it, but this is like the exact opposite. This evil spirit, uh, this household is torn apart it's like the exact opposite motion of what happens when the Holy Spirit enters into a household. This is uh, not being clothed in their right mind. It's being uh, driven out of the house naked and wounded. It's almost like a, an Eden scene after Adam and Eve, where they leave the garden and they, uh, they're given, uh, they realize they're naked, wounded by what's happened. Uh, God has to, of course, give them clothing when they leave, but um, wherever there is the presence of an evil spirit or evil, there's always a chaos and violence. Uh, and it's something that world, um, I think I've said on here before, um, being at a bookstore and hearing behind me, you know, folks, I'm the one person looking at the Christian section. There's usually others, of course, but almost without doubt, there's more people when I'm there looking at the occult side of things more than they are at the Christian side of things. And are you talking about conversations McKay? I've, 
hurt. Yes, I'm talking about my case. <laughs> With a back-to-back. <laughs> yep. So fascinating conversations that I have overheard of, um, and it's usually so much ignorance, or I can tell pain about what they encountered in Christianity and not and looking for something else because the Christianity that they encountered was mm, thin <laughs> or a little bit kooky. Um, and by kooky, I don't mean like that they believe in angels and spirits and things, but that they were not grounded in the actual apostolic faith, but the opinions of men from the 18th or 19th century. Yes, I said that. Um, so this event becomes a great evangelistic event because I, I can you imagine what the Jewish exorcists, you know, we tried to cast him out, but that spirit whooped our butts. <laughs> Just came out and that was that. And fear falls upon them. They, they realize the demons even know who the Lord Jesus is. Uh, what do you all make in verse 18? Many also of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. I think it's tied to verse 19. So, There's I mean, a lot of magic going on. Yeah, and I, I can also see sort of a conversion, but not all the way quite yet for some people. And then others like, I, you know, maybe it was more of an exterior. My family did it. Yep. Neighbor did it. So why not? But then, uh, you know, it's like the, the landowner who plants all the seeds and maybe seeds fell on rocky ground or something like that. Yeah. Do you think there's anything important about it being in Ephesus? Ephesus becomes, uh, obviously there's the, the book of Ephesians, but F, what, what is the importance of Ephesus in the early church? Do you all, do you all know or remember? Luke and Cleopas. Luke and Cleopas. Also some other important folks. Wasn't the apostle John Bishop there for some time? Yeah, or? He, you know, I don't know if the Apostle John ever became a, a bishop per se in that way. I wrote, he was yeah, there. Apostles different, yeah. Um, there's also somebody else who's very important who was in Ephesus. Was it Peter? No, somebody very close to our Lord. Oh, his mother. Just yep. His mother with, was with John. Ephesus. Yes, exactly. Uh, I, I think it, it probably is no um, uh, no surprise if you look in Ephesians uh, that there is this is where you find spiritual warfare in the uh, the epistles where it put on the whole armor of God and all of that. This is going to the Ephesians uh, where he talks about uh, having no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness. You should expose them. Uh, you have, like, I mean, throughout the ancient world, uh, but in particular places, there was, if I remember, there's a particular cult. I can't remember what it was in, a few, in Ephesus that was very prominent, though. Um, by cult, I mean pagan worship. Um, uh, there's going to be places where there's going to be serious uh, magic, and um, I think we probably need to be actually getting ourselves prepared for the fact that some of the stuff is coming back and it's actually very popular uh, with youths these days. Um, and I think it is a desire to turn to that for some kind of power in the midst of feeling powerless. Some attempt like the, the, the spiritual, but they, they still want to tap into something. There's some kind of idea and of a spirituality or God in a vague sense, but maybe not the God of Christianity. And you're really messing with fire with a lot of those things. Um, it, it, these things are real. Uh, I think I grew up in such a way that a lot of this stuff was just kind of secularized or not really, you know, you know, thinking of things like playing with Ouija boards and just being like, oh, whatever, this is just a bunch of hooey. 
I'm more of the mind now. I'm like, I, you just probably shouldn't try to contact things. Why, why do that? Why, why court uh, and ask things to come? Because scripture and the tradition talk a lot about this stuff existing and it still is here and present. And I think we have as being, you know, sealed Orthodox Christians, uh, they cannot just, you know, there's this fear of like being possessed or something. They, they can't just possess you uh, like you're some kind of, you know, I don't know what kind of movie would probably show this, but uh, if you court them and bite them into your life, well, get ready to flee out of your house naked and wounded. That's all I'll say. So obviously they burnt a whole lot of magic books uh, because that was, seems like a lot of money, 50,000 pieces of silver. So moral of the story is confess Jesus Christ, <laughs> be baptized and chrismated, receive Holy <laughs> Communion, stay away from demons because they're serious. Does anyone else have anything to say about that fascinating account? I have a couple thoughts here. Mm-hmm. One is I'm wondering, you know, I've been, I've been listening to Jeannie Constantini talking about um, the book of Corinthians Oh, yes. And in particular, how um, the Apostle Paul was widely not regarded as an apostle. Yes. And in particular, in the, you know, the Corinthians, they, these super apostles came and said, oh, he's not really an apostle. I and love the super apostles. Well, I don't mean I love them as in like, <laughs> they're my role models, but the fact that, they're, <laughs> that he calls them super apostles is awesome. But I think it's interesting yeah, and of course, you know, Paul wrote, wrote the letter back to them and said, now look, I'm not inferior to these guys. And it strikes me here that it's not been so long since he was in Corinth. And now, you know, I don't know when this is relative to when he wrote his letters to the Corinthians, but these two passages at the beginning of chapter nine. So, you know, we have the apostle Paul baptizing people. He lays his hands on them yes. and they receive the Holy Spirit. Yes. and speak in tongues, and now handkerchiefs and aprons touch him, and then they're taken to other people, and they heal them, and he's casting out demons, and these other demons who are unrelated, they say that they know Paul like they know Jesus, yeah. and I, I, I almost wonder if here Luke is trying to make the case for uh, uh, Paul's apostleship. I think you're right. Yeah. I don't, and I don't think that's taking a cynical view, right? Like that's some kind of like that Luke is trying to be propaganda, <laughs> but I, I think it, he's underlining what the experience was and the validity of Pauline ministry that it was uh, coextensive with Jesus's ministry and the spreading of the kingdom. Right. Just, you know, here are the eyewitness accounts. If you've got questions, let me tell you how it really happened. Right. Yeah. And I, also- Go ahead, Reed, please. Oh, I was going to change topics. So. Go for it. Oh, well, it also strikes me that these books, being worth 50,000 pieces of silver, um, you know, I've heard about how very expensive books were in the ancient world. And this question about, well, could people even have copies of the scripture? And just to have like a short one of Paul's letters might have been three months wages. Yeah. And yet these people had very expensive books for their magical arts and so it sounds as though having some piece of the scriptures for themselves would have been well within the means of some reasonable fraction of the population. Yep. If it mattered that much to them. Yep. I think it also just underlines the sacrifice that is needed. We've talked about money a few times here in the book of Acts, and it is important um, to actually divulge certain practices and confess them and then give them up. Uh, if you're going to, um, if the word of the Lord is going to prevail, uh, it requires usually a continual and deeper repentance on our part. Well, and it's interesting. It sacrifices sometimes. <laughs> Well, it is also striking that evidently these people had come to Christ. They were believers. Hadn't immediately occurred to them that there was a problem with these, this other part of their lives. And right. 
and sort of God in his mercy gave them a little instruction. <laughs> they began to learn better. Thankfully, he is very patient with us. <laughs> so should we finish this chapter here? Finish I'm good. With Wyatt. Uh, <laughs> Erica, would you like to read this last section? Sure. Just Let's just go ahead and do the whole thing. Okay. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia his two helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little stir concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who also made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable company of people, saying gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may count for nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificent, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater dragging with them Gaius and Astarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. Paul wished to go in among the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Some of the Asiarchs also, who were friends of his, sent to him and begged him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand, wishing to make a defense to the people. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all with one voice cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be contradicted, you ought to be quiet and to do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsman with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are in danger of being charged with rioting today, there being no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said this, he dismissed the assembly. So more turning the world upside down because of the preaching of Paul and the kingdom. Um, it kind of reminds me of this great as Artemis of the Ephesians reminds me of kind of like Allah Akbar, this kind of like this chanting, God is great. This, um, uh, this reminds me also earlier of the account where Paul um, disrupts the trade around the uh, girl who is possessed <laughs> and they're upset because they're going to lose some money in this venture. Um, and also get a little peek into pagan uh, ideas, the temple of Artemis, but also the sacred stone that fell from the sky. I'm going to have to look that up. Um, what exactly is involved there? What do you all make of this? More chaos being as evidence of uh, or the overturning of things because of the preaching of the, of the way, the ancient world, the reverberations that they don't they they foresee correctly that there is going to be a destruction of their uh, their temples and their gods and goddesses. 
they don't realize just how much <laughs> destruction that within a few hundred years there would be somebody who would be the last actual pagan and he would die or he or she would die not long after and by the time you get julian apostate you know a uh schoolboy with basil um he had a hard time reviving the ancient paganism because it was already dying out in his generation. Have That's you read David? That. Do what? Have you read David Bentley Hart's um, fictional story about sort of the last pagan priest at the time of Julian the Apostate? No. no. <laughs> Where did it's he write that? I think it's in the collection. Uh, Hang on just a second. I think it's on the shelf right here. But he put out that collection of like five um, fictional stories, mm -hmm. fictional short stories called The Devil and Pierre Garnet. Garnet. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And uh, yeah, The House of Apollo, it's called. 25 pages. So. Is it good? Um, it's, I enjoyed it. Certainly it's, it's a, it's a bit of a sort of a look into this world that's so far removed from ours Yeah. and how from the point of view of this pagan priest, Julian was kind of a, a silly guy who really didn't get it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as you would sort of expect from heart, he, he again, puts it all in, in from the eyes of the, uh, the pagan priest who, sees himself losing something precious. It's almost a chance to try to appreciate what the pagans thought they saw in all of this. Right. Do you remember what exactly he thought was precious or in, in? Well, just the, the, the worship of the, of, of the pagan gods. Right. That it was something like, I think he had been born to be the priest because he was descended from the priests and he was still maintaining it at a time when pretty much everyone had dropped it. And of course, right. this is also historically what was happening. Everyone was yes. turning to Christ. Yep. Yep. So Ro Roman rule basically saves the day here where the town clerk <laughs> says, hey, guys, let's not get in trouble with the empire. So uh, there's courts for this. What do you think about the town clerk saying you brought these men who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess? Does that mean that the, the early Christians were not against Artemis? I think that's interesting. I wonder whether on the one, from the one point of view, it's just sort of rhetorical propaganda. It's like, look, we need to quiet things down. They're okay. Don't worry about it. Right. Or not out if, here like actively campaigning, you know, against Artemis. They're just, people are following them. Yeah, that maybe they really aren't speaking directly against Artemis or any other particular god. They're speaking against idolatry, maybe generally. Right. But maybe much more. They're preaching Christ. Yep. Should we passage, go ahead, read? Sorry. I, I always wonder whether this passage is meant to be as funny as it always seems to me. It seems funny to me. And it's like, okay, so who saves the day? The town clerk. <laughs> <laughs> the bureaucrat. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, when it says, well, the place is filled. Most of the people don't know why they're there. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> so should we go into 20 a little bit? About 10 minutes? Sure. Okay. All right. Erica, would you like to read the first six verses here? Sure. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and having exhorted them, took leave of them and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through these parts and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he determined to return through Macedonia. Sopater of Berea, the son of uh, Phyrus, accompanied him, 
and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, uh, Tiki, Tichi, Tichicus, Trophimus, Tichicus and uh, Trophimus. These went on and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So we get in short order, the similar path that Paul has gone. He goes someplace, exhorts people, he leaves, he goes to another place, he encourages people. The Jews decide to plot against him, so he leaves. Uh, and he's got this kind of jolly band of disciples carrying on after him. Uh, and they are still uh, observing Jewish practices, the days of unleavened bread. Anything else about these verses as we move forward? All right, Reed, would you read the next 7 through 12? Sure. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the morrow. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lights in the upper chamber where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus was sitting in the window. He sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and embracing him said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a little, uh, a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they made, and they took the lad away alive and were not a little comforted. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sometimes just, it's quaint the way it reads. And we're not a little comforted. Are we British? Um, <laughs> I probably watch too many British shows. Um, understatements. So, what's going on in the first day of the week here? Breaking are they just are they having a meal? What does break bread mean in Luke Acts? Communion is it not? Yes. The Eucharist. You see that at the end of Luke, with the road to Emmaus. You see it in Acts two. When they're talking about going from house to house, breaking bread, uh, I don't think that delimits or like says they're not eating bread together, but it's code for they are having communion. Paul's little, maybe we get a little peek into Paul's um, ways of how he talks, uh, a little long-winded here, um, going on and on and on. And uh, one of the people there falls asleep, and he falls down. Um, basically, there's a miracle. Just basically saying he didn't die. Why do you think they mentioned this? This is just a. Well. It's a, random, I mean, it's a really random story. So Luke has <laughs> to have something, you know, in mind here. Well, I mean, raising the dead is pretty remarkable. Do you think he died? Oh, yep, taken up dead, yep. So more of Luke padding Paul's uh, apostolic resume here? Maybe. And also, I mean, it's something of the feel of just, you know, Paul's love for these people, their love for him, yeah. the sort of form that his pastoral care of them took. He comes to visit um, what he's been there seven days, and on the, or he's going to stay seven days, and on the first day of the week, you know, they stay up all night to listen to Paul. They're having a revival, up. Reed. Paul's got to <laughs> preach. You got the ten out. They're like, come on, Paul. But it's like, you know, it's almost like 
there's so much that needs to be said. You all are going to face so much that I'm not going to be back to help you. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. For a very long time. Um, I think so there's that, something. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, I just, there's something very sweet about it all, is it really seems to show his concern for them and their love for him, that they are all willing to stay up all night and do this. I think you're on to something too, that it helps reading his epistles to get a, a view into his pastoral care that Paul is very much the missionary debater, um, a man of action, kind of almost like he's Odysseus or something here in the book of Acts, you know, as he goes from place to place and, uh, with his wisdom, he's able to outwit people and as he gets beaten, uh, et cetera. Uh, there are actually monographs about Paul being that the uh, Axis kind of works like this, actually, like Odysseus in some ways. Um, <laughs> but that Paul's deep love for the people is very evident in his epistles and you see it here, but I think especially this is one of the more, more poignant of, um, as you're saying, read of the intensity of his character and devotion and conviction about what he's doing. Um, and the ability, of course, if, if napkins and things heal people, so why can't just the presence of Paul be able to heal them? Like it was for Peter in Jerusalem in the book of Acts, or in the book of Acts, <laughs> earlier in the book of Acts. <laughs> we're still in the book of Acts. Should we keep going? I feel like we're on a little bit of a roll. Well, let's just read a little bit more. Let's finish this chapter. Let's do it. <laughs> There's not much left. Charge. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and read a little bit, if you all don't mind. We're going ahead to the ship. We set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Metellini. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Hios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you all the time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with the trials, which befell me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance to God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, bound in the spirit, not knowing what shall befall me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions, afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may accomplish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all you among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with the blood of his own son. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I've shown that by so toiling one must help the weak, Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had spoken thus, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they all wept and embraced Paul and kissed him, sorrowing most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they should not see his face no more. And they brought him to the ship. 
So underlining what Reed was just sharing with us about the pastoral care of Paul, um, I feel like we don't actually have time to actually get into. There's a lot going on here in this uh, speech that he gives to the elders of Ephesus. Um, this is actually part of this is, um, I forget which Sunday, this epistle reading is attached to one of the Sundays of the ecumenical councils. I think it's the fathers of the first, it's either the fourth ecumenical council or the first six ecumenical councils. I can't remember which it was, but it was a few weeks, months ago now, actually, uh, because I actually used this text to preach uh, out of um, specifically talking about how uh, to be aware that there, the wolves that will come, uh, there will be wolves from without, but also men from within the church who will speak perverse things to draw away disciples after them and to be on guard because that is still a real reality for us. Um, Paul's heart here uh, that we saw in all of his talking uh, where Eutychius uh, decided to take a snooze uh, was because he's declaring the whole counsel of God. Uh, and I think there's something important uh, in Paul's admon admonition to declare the whole counsel of God, not just a part of it or the, you know, my favorite part of it, but all of it. Um, that there was in his being with them as the as their apostle in his apostolic ministry, uh, night and day to admonish uh, and do it with tears. Um, but I think this also gets to what Reed was uh, referring to that we see as a theme in Corinthians, um, that the testimony of Paul's apostleship isn't that isn't just that he was correct about things, but that he served with humility, with tears, uh, that he coveted no one's silver or gold. Again, this uh, this uh, apostolic uh, extension of the kingdom's reversal of values um, that it is better to sacrifice or um, not to covet silver or gold. That it seems to really mess things up in the kingdom. Um, and that uh, there is instead of a kind of uh, coveting of silver and gold, that there needs to be tolling for the weak. Um, as we remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he said is more blessed to give than to receive. If I'm remembering correctly, is there anywhere in the gospels where Jesus says this? I don't believe so. So we're going to wrap this evening up with me saying, see, <laughs> there are elements in scripture uh, that refer to things of authority outside of itself. Um, is there any doubt that Jesus said this? No. Is there an issue that it's not in the gospels? Not for me. Not for me. <laughs> um the Gospels, uh, as we you know, read at the end of the Gospel of John, right? It says we'd have to fill up books upon books upon books if we're going to try and capture all that happened or what he said. So the Gospels function as icons. Uh, scripture functions as way, as I was talking earlier this evening during the little mini homily after Vespers, about how uh, the use of the reading of the Psalter in our spiritual life and how in uh, the services there's always right before the Psalter, you have come, let us worship God, our King, come, let us worship Christ, our King and our God, come, let us worship before him, Christ himself, our King and our God, that that is the key to the Psalms that we're reading afterwards, but that, that's the key to scripture that we encounter Christ uh, in the text, even in something like a historical book, like the book of Acts, which is kind of like um, the historical books of the Old Testament, uh, the kingdoms or First Kings, Second Kings, uh, and First and Second Chronicles, um, or uh, Samuel, uh, First and Second Samuel, that these books um, you can discern the reign of God and the importance of what it means to follow God and the ramifications when, uh, for example, uh, in First Kingdoms where the uh, priests are uh, nullifying the sacrifice of Lord Phineas and Hophni because of uh, their lack of respect 
uh, and taking from the sacrifice in incorrect ways. Um, so let's next time, we're not going to end here as we finish this chapter, but I would like for us to come back next time and talk a little bit more about um, Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders. Does that sound good to everybody? Sounds does very good. Have, does that, anyone, anyone have anything to say about this before we wrap up? I'll take that silence as silence. <laughs> That's probably well, a good you, interpretation, right? <laughs> as you say, there's so much there, it seems better to wait till we can discuss it all at once. Exactly. So I'm going to go ahead and stop the recording.